Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 74, brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear. Today, I'm joined by John Eberhart to talk hunting-pressured whitetails, out-of-state hunts, and saddle hunting. I'm also announcing the winner of the Exodus Trek giveaway, so stay tuned. All right, all right. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to all of you out there. Hope your week is going okay. Hopefully, today's podcast will help you make it through uh, the remainder of your week and uh, with just a little bit more ease. I hope everyone's had a chance to get out and do do some deer work. It's Of course, the season is fast, uh, fast approaching. I've been out doing a little bit of glassing, and actually, last night I was pretty... So, it's... Um, it's a little bit of both both sides of this. So I was super stoked while I went out to glass last night, um, and I saw a hammer hammer buck uh, in a bean field. Uh, I've been kind of checking out this one area close close to where I live, um, and it's, there's some farmland. It's like kind of kind of nearby, and been out glassing it a few times, and I've seen a few bucks, and I saw this one just kind of caught a glimpse of him. I guess it was maybe two or three weeks ago, and I just hadn't had a chance to get back, and I finally had a chance to get out. And, uh, and do a little bit more glassing and sure enough he popped out the same place I had seen him the uh, the, 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 the you know previous three weeks ago um, the only bummer is so I was super excited because he was beautiful mainframe eight long brow tines super long g2s I mean for Pennsylvania he was he's a hammer um, you know I don't want to say you know venture a guess of what the score would be but um, he, he'd probably be every bit as nice as the deer I killed two years ago in, in Ohio possibly a little bit bigger. Um, so it'd be, you know, a, a damn nice deer to take for Pennsylvania. The only bummer is, is that he is near some public, but not nearly close enough that I don't think, that, I, I just don't feel like he's going to venture that far, that far away. Um, he kind of lives, you know, as I was looking at, uh, at the map and kind of trying to figure out where I might be able to hunt him, he's basically en- encompassed in all, all private ground of which, I don't have any permission to hunt any of those areas. I'm hoping to change that. I've kind of pinpointed a few properties um, where I think he might be living because essentially there's a bunch of ag that's around this, but most of the farms that are in this area, you know, or, or it's it's all fields. There's very little, um, very little timber. So the field that I had, I had glassed him in, there's a block of timber. I guess it would be to the to the west 
of, of that field. And then it, it kind of adjacent to that little block of timber is a, another property on the back side of that. So even further west who has an even larger block of, of, of timber. And that, I mean, and I'm talking small properties. I mean, this property that butts up to the, the, the field that I'm talking about is probably, you know, when I looked at it, it was, I think a total of 10 acres and there's probably eight acres of, of timber. Um, so I'm going to do my best to try to get access there because this deer is just a hammer and I have a feeling like all the other surrounding areas are just small strips of timber that's kind of in between homes and stuff like that. And so I have a feeling he pro- he's probably lived there for a while and not ever really been hunted. Um, so he's probably, you know, got to be a mature deer and he's he's got all the bone to show for it. Um, you know, which coincidentally, you know, today we're talking with John Eberhardt. And part of what we talk about a little bit is his approach to getting access to to private ground. Um, and I'm actually going to kind of put his his words to use here. You know, he has a, a philosophy of how he approaches doing it to let people know that he's serious, uh, that he's a dedicated hunter, that he's re- respectful, and uh, that he's not just some dude that's going to come on the property and and you know and not pay attention to the the way they want it hunted and, and, and the way they want things taken care of. So I'm going to take his his words of wisdom, try to put them in, into action, and see if I can't get access to hunt this deer on one of the two properties with a, with that has the timber that's nearby where I'd seen him. So I guess stay tuned for that. We'll see how that kind of, kind of plays out. Uh, but before we get John on the line, we did have a Exodus Trek trail camera giveaway that we were running. So thanks to all of you who were participating in that. And we did do the drawing or I did do the drawing for that. And the winner for this drum roll is Sean Pearson. Sean, you won the Exodus Trek trail camera. I will shoot you an email uh, sometime this week. We'll get your contact information and get that thing mailed out to you so you can get it into the uh, to the timber. So again, thanks to all of you who uh, participated and entered. Um, as I had mentioned, today's guest is uh, none other than John Eberhardt. Uh, I've read uh, w- uh, one of his books, Precision Whitetails, uh, or Precision Bowhunting, I believe is what it's called. Um, and it's it was one of those things where, you know, as if you read it early on in like your bow hunting life, it, it'll help you a ton in terms of how to kind of take bow hunting and take an all year round approach to it. For someone who's been bow hunting, I think what it did more for me than anything was it started kind of bringing things to light that I've been seeing, maybe overlooking. Um, but in some instances I am, I'm, I'm reading his words. And then in this case, during this podcast, talking to him and as he's saying things, it's like, I'm remembering back to hunts that I've had and kind of attaching those experiences that I've had with, you know, the experiences in, in kind of, I guess, um, information and details he's laying out. And so it starts to all kind of come together. So for, for me, it's like, I would recommend this book for anybody beginner or someone who's been bow hunting for a while. Um, just cause it starts to really illuminate the things that you've been experiencing that you may just not have paid a lot of attention to or didn't necessarily know what the meaning of what you were seeing was. Um, so super helpful, you know, John, super nice guy, you know, appreciate him spending a bunch of time with me talking, talking deer hunting. And we'll, we will get to that in one second. But before we do that, let's take a quick second to talk about our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. First and foremost, we are brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? Tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout, and you get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. They've also just recently released the uh, pro blade which is the blade that is attachable to the pool saws that kind of keep the it's it's a it's a beast of a blade it'll it'll keep the branches that you're 
trimming at distance. It's kind of curved at both ends and allows you to kind of keep it on the blade so you're not kind of jumping around all over the all over the branch and it makes it a, an easier time cutting at, at height. So go ahead and check them out at wickedtreegear.com. We're also brought to you by Exodus Outdoor Gear. The new Exodus Trek is a byproduct of all consumer voices who have been excited about what Exodus trail cameras have to offer but just can't fit a $200 camera in their budget, and that's okay. A budget-friendly camera backed by the industry's leading warranty is now here. The Trek comes in at $145, and it has the same proprietary shell design as the Lift Series camera. Same five-year warranty, awesome customer service, 0.7-second trigger speed, photo, video, time-lapse, and hybrid modes, all with a simple single-line backlit LED display. You also get about 20,000 images on one set of lithium batteries. If you'd like to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, check them out at exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you like what you see, save yourself $20 and use the promo code TRUTH at checkout. We're also brought to you by Tecamani Seed. Everything is bigger in Texas. No matter if you are in the South, Midwest, or Northeast, Tecamani has your food plot seed needs covered. Visit Tecamani.com and check out their product selector tool and help allow them to help you pick the right seed for your food plots. Use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and save 20%. They've also just recently released the Wicked Greens, which is an awesome uh, for the for the Midwest and North for that uh, fall and late season forage. So go ahead and check that out. I'm going to be putting that in here in like the next two weeks in uh, two of my plots. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy smarter design, stronger construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. Promo code TRUTH. Save yourself 20%. And now without further ado, let's get Mr. Eberhardt on the line. All right, folks, we are live, and welcome back to another episode of The Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. So I have to say I am pretty excited for today's podcast. I've been wanting to do this one for a while, but I made myself wait until I read this gentleman's book. So the, the gentleman that I have with me today is uh, quite an accomplished uh, hunter, uh, but more uh, even more than that is he has several books that he's written. He's written for magazine articles. He has a web video thing that he's doing right now with deer and deer hunting, which is just chocked full of killer information. He has more record bucks on his wall than I've probably ever seen in my lifetime, doing it all on high pressure and uh, permission access strictly. And I'm talking about no other than John Eberhart. How you doing, buddy? Uh, thank you, Clint. That was a nice intro. I'm doing very, very well. Thank Good. You. Well, I, I, I aim to give great intros. If I don't do anything else well, I try to make at least the beginning <laughs> really good. So <laughs> we have at least that going for us. But uh, I, I do appreciate you coming on. And as I had mentioned, you know, I had re- I'd read your book, uh, Precision Bow Hunting, here recently, and it kind of prompted me, you know, made me think a lot about my approach. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, if, if this is something that makes me kind of stop and take pause and take stock and how I'm approaching hunting overall i thought it'd be great to just to kind of have you on and kind of talk through some of those scenarios but before we dive into the meat of our uh, of our conversation if you wouldn't mind and i know a lot of folks out there listening know you know quite a great deal about you but just just to kind of help level set the conversation if you wouldn't mind give us a little bit of background about who you are you know what you do professionally you know, where you're from uh, i'm a sales rep in the hunting industry i live in michigan which is the most heavily bow hunted state in the country you have about three hundred twenty thousand bow hunters and we're second on the gun hunting side to Texas. Uh, I do not gun hunt. I'm strictly a bow hunter. Uh, I started bow hunting in the mid-60s. I currently have 50 bucks in the record book, uh, 31 of Michigan. Um, that's off 19 different properties, and I've taken 22 
bow hunting trips out of Michigan to like Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, Ohio. And on those 22 bow hunting trips, I've taken 19 Pope and Young bucks off uh, 13 different properties. So accumulatively, I have 50 bucks in the record book, and everything from day one has been on either public land, a free walk-on properties, which you see a lot of that out west, or knock-on-doors for free permission properties. Uh, none of my relatives own, own land. My None of my relatives hunt, so I was self-taught. And uh, I don't know. I've, I've had opportunities to hunt and do some TV shows, uh, which would be paid hunt ranches in lieu of free advertising, and I've chosen not to do that because I feel like I'd be letting down my followers because everything I do is on pressured land. You know, I've written three books. Uh, the one you wrote or read, Precision Bow Hunting, was the middle one. I did a bow hunting pressured whitetails and then a bow hunting whitetails the Ebert way. And I've written lots of articles for lots of magazines, uh, national as well as regional. Do a lot of seminars in the Midwest at Deer Expos, Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, things like that. Nice. Yeah. So I'm curious. You know, you've been you've been at this a long time, and you've you've had, as you'd kind of mentioned, a great deal of. Uh, of success, and and as we know, you know, you and I were talking right before we started hitting the uh, record button that uh, you know I'm from Pennsylvania, which you know I can kind of understand that the heavy pressure approach, especially when we're talking you know public land. I mean, you know, not for nothing, but even private land in Pennsylvania and Michigan hunts like public land in a lot of other states. You know, I, I hunt Ohio public land, and it hunts probably better than most of the private land that I have access to in, in, in most regards. But I'm curious, just from, from a guy's perspective who've been do, who's been doing this a long time, I've seen, you know, a shift, it feels like, that people are more and more interested in hunting public land, even though they know that it's more of a challenge, right? you got to put in more time. There's more work to be done. The odds are kind of stacked against you to a degree unless you put your work in. And even then, you know, it's 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 not easy right so i'm just curious you know what do you think is kind of driving that that you know that rejuvenation of you know the love of that challenge and in in, in hunting public lands and, and steering a little bit away from the the, the, the uh, private approach well i think it's twofold first off it's more gratifying to kill a two and a half year old buck on public land in a state like west virginia pa massachusetts and michigan and new york it's more difficult and more gratifying to kill a two-and-a-half-year-old, let's say, 95-inch, 14-inch wide eight-point than it is to kill a five-and-a-half-year-old in Iowa and Kansas and places like that. So it's it's more self-gratifying, and also more people are going to public land because, let's be real, uh, the TV guys over the last 15 to 20 years have pushed this whole trophy agenda so much to the point where there's a lot of hunters that don't have access. Uh, you can't, just can't go out and knock on somebody's door and get permission anymore. It's very, very difficult. So, you know, everybody's leasing land and keeping everybody off and micromanaging it for big bucks. And, you know, it's getting to be like your Europe where it's going to eventually end up being a rich man sport where if you got money, you can kill big bucks. And if you don't, you have to, you know, public, public land. It's, 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 unfortunately, it's going that way. Right. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you with the, the gratification piece. You know, I, I shot a smaller deer last year. He's probably two and a half year old, eight point, just almost described to a T like, like you had just mentioned. And it was one of the more gratifying ones. Cause it was, it was a free permission, small parcel, about three acres, but it butted up against public. So I was kind of straddling the public private, private line. Um, and I put a little bit of time in there and I hunted it the season before and late season kind of had, thought I had an idea how it might get used. And 
sure enough, it panned out. Um, and it was probably one of my favorite hunts, um, just because it's, I had to kind of quickly put all the pieces together and there wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I had years and years of information to kind of base it off of. I didn't watch a deer grow up necessarily in that property to know that he was there. Um, I you mean, you walked, didn't have him named. I didn't have him named. Not that one. No, I, didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have him named. He was, he was, uh, what, what we will call him is, uh, un- unlucky deer number <laughs> unlucky well, something no- else oh well, i was just gonna say something else that you said is very very true you get in you get in states with high general populations like a pa west virginia new york massachusetts michigan you know when you have states with high general populations you have very high property prices so mm-hmm. it's very common in you know the rural areas in southern michigan to have you know 10 to 15 houses in a 640 acre section and you know they all own five to 10 20 acres maybe even 40 so even even public lands in rural you know states that have high general populations you know they it's not uncommon at all to have 20 to 30 40 bow hunters in trees on opening day they're not going to be 20 to 40 bow hunters every day of the season but on opening day that is the norm in in lots of areas in heavily pressured states yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent agree. And uh, yeah, he was just luck, unlucky northeastern Pennsylvania deer was what we what we'll call that guy. We'll call him awesome. we'll call him nice white <laughs> European mount that I made sitting on my bar top. That's <laughs> that might be a better, uh, a more fitting name. Um, but you, you had mentioned there as you were as we were talking about the gratification of of hunting public lands and what's kind of driving folks there. And you know, and and you started talking a little bit about private permission and how challenging it is that you just can't you know it's you know maybe 20 30 years ago you could walk up and knock on you know joe's door down the street and say hey can you mind if i hunt your property and he may let you now it seems less and less likely right so and i know you have a pretty great approach to you know getting access so if, you know if you wouldn't mind i want to just kind of kind of uncover what you how you go about getting access because i know you're a a guy who likes to make sure he has plenty of options open to him. Correct. Um, and so you're not just counting on having, you know, I've got this property here and this property here and that's it. It's like you're, you're anticipating you're going to lose properties year over. And so you kind of have Absolutely. a plan. So. Absolutely. I've, I I know without question, I've hunted at least 150 different properties in my lifetime. You know, and I'm losing them and gaining them all the time. Uh, that's just part of the agenda. If you don't, if you don't have money to buy your own property, and uh, basically what I what I typically do, now last couple of years I haven't had to go out and get any new permission, although I did get permission to hunt one tree this year and I have already prepped it. Uh, but typically what I do is I put a resume together, just like you're putting a resume together for a job. You know, my name, uh, my, you know, if I'm married, I put my kids, which I am married, I put my job, my phone number, uh, I put my email address on it, all of my... Uh, things that I'm into, you know, I golf, I'm a member of this, I'm a member of that. And, um, I, I, I make these resumes and when I, you know, go online and I look at properties and if I want to ask somebody for permission, you know, I'll, I'll dress nicely, nice and casual. I don't go up there in camel and I don't go with a truck. I drive a minivan. I don't go up there with a truck with stickers all over it. Cause that's mm-hmm. offensive to a lot of people. And I'll, I'll ask for permission. And if they hesitate whatsoever, I stop them, and I give them that sheet of paper to let them know I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a serious hunter. I hunt by myself, and I say, you know what? Do me a favor. Just take some time in the next week or so and, and read that, and let me let me get back with you in a couple of weeks. But I just want 
to let you know I'm serious. You know, I'm going to take care of your property. You know, I'm going to pick up after myself. I'll watch it for you. Uh, you know, keep an eye, let you know if anything's going on with other people sneaking in or whatever. And, um, you know, and then I, I typically don't call them back. I try to go see them in person. Mm-hmm. That's what I typically do. Nice. And so what do you think? And that is, has worked pretty good. That's right. So what do you think your success, uh, your success rate has been with that? Depends on where I'm at. <laughs> if <laughs> I'm enough. in zone three, which is the southern half of the southern peninsula in Michigan, my success rate is probably 10%. If I'm in Iowa, Kansas, uh, Ohio, southern Ohio, my success rate, like in Kansas, is probably 60%. My success rate in Iowa and southern Ohio is probably 30 to 40%. Last year, I asked mm-hmm. two property owners, and I got permission on both of them in southern Ohio. So it totally depends on where you're at. The more pressured the area, the more people, the more farmers are getting asked for permission. So obviously, the lower your percentages are going to be of getting free permission. Right. So this kind of leads into my next question, that the idea of the more pressure, the more unlikely, right? Because they're probably getting peppered with requests to, to, to hunt their property. So, you know, that comes, you know, being a sales guy, right? It's like you have to qualify the parcel. I like to call it. It's almost like qualifying a lead, you know, to a, mm-hmm. to a degree. And so, you know, when you're looking at, at, a, at a piece of land that you might want to hunt, how do you go about kind of qualifying it as something that you might want to hunt? And then, you know, what's your scouting approach to, to, to define your hunting locations on those pieces that you're kind of starting anew and don't have, you know, a historical kind of database to pull from? Well, if it's public land, I typically, not typically, I have one standing rule. If I can walk to any location, if I go out and scout public land, I usually look at it on the Internet in an aerial view first. But if I can, if I can walk in an upright position to any location from a, a parking area, uh, I don't care how much sign is there, mm-hmm. I won't set it up because mm-hmm. I'm going to have company. Other people are going to find it. So right. a public land, I have to cross rivers with waders, a hip boots, a canoe, cross a lake, crawl through brush. I have to separate myself from the other hunters. Otherwise, there's no reason for me to expect any different results than what those hunters have. So I have to work harder than they do and go to places they are not willing to go. That's also the same places where the people that are hunting the easy access property push the mature bucks that I want to kill anyway. Mm -hmm. So that's where they're more likely back in the heavier cover to move during daylight hours. Mm -hmm. Now on private parcels, um, I, I... will rarely even look at a private parcel unless I know looking at an aerial that has that it has a decent bedding area because on private parcels if you don't have a bedding area and everything else is relatively open the odds of a daytime opportunity in a mature buck that I want to kill is pretty unlikely so there has to be a bedding area on the property or possibly bordering the fence line where they can come out of a bedding area into where I'm hunting um so that's my criteria. You know, a lot of times I'll I'll get permission and I'll scout properties and I never ever go back. Hmm. Public lands or private. I've scouted lots of private parcels and the size is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I've turned down hundred and sixty acre parcels in the past, whereas I've hunted and and hunted on two acre parcels and killed monster bucks on two acre parcels that were the you know, they were all bedding area. Right. That's interesting. I've, I've I've had that experience just this past year where there was a piece of public ground that I was looking at on an aerial, right? I was checking it out and it, it had piqued my interest. And it was one of those pieces where it wasn't huge and I felt like it might get overlooked. 
Um, and so I did a walk through um, this past uh, winter just to kind of see what was there, what sign was left there from the, from the year before and online or, you know, online, it looks, looked pretty good until I started hiking in. Now I did see some sign and there was one kind of back corner of it that was really nasty thick with that kind of fell down in this huge draw. And, but once I got there, what I realized was is I, I couldn't see it on the aerial, but there was easy walking access pretty much all the way back to that spot. And so when I saw all the sign and stuff there, what that basically told me was is that is most likely nighttime or nocturnal sign, most likely, because that is going to be a really easy access point. Um, and then there were, there were houses kind of down on the backside of that draw. It was a couple hundred yards away, um, but still it wasn't anything that was going to keep someone from kind of hiking, hiking in there, which, you know, terrain wise and uh, habitat wise, it looked pretty great. Um, but just, you know, walking in, I, I just had a feeling it was going to be uh, overrun with people. So I... I backed out of that one, and that is now off the uh, off the uh, off the checklist, so to speak. But all the sign in the world is irrelevant. There could be ten scrapes and fifty buck rubs, and if it's easy access for other hunters, and other hunters have permission on the same property, uh, if if that sign was made by a mature buck, odds are ninety nine point nine percent it was made after dark. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say it's not going to get visited by a year and a half, and possibly even a two and a half, but three and a half year old and older bucks very very unlikely right yeah you're you're just wishing and hoping at that point so yeah yeah so i'm curious so so we kind of get a, a glimpse into your approach whenever you're, you're we're talking you know public and, and and private parcel that when you don't have a, a whole lot of experience with it but i want to get a sense you know whenever you're making so say you're going to go hunt you know ohio right for example right or you know any other out of, out of state hunt for you and that you don't have any historical information. Like, what is your approach for kind of taking that? Because it's, it's always more challenging, right? Because I, I think some guys are intimidated by the fact that they can't just drive down the street and kind of check the parcel out. They really have to kind of do their mental preparation work before they get there because they're going to have limited trips and limited time, you know, in, in, uh-huh. in the areas that they don't particularly live, um, which can be a little bit intimidating. So I'm just curious what your process is for that, you know, that distance scouting and then seeing the parcel and kind of qualifying that from, you know, uh, from long range, so to speak, to set up for a hunting season. I have never, ever on any out-of-state hunt went and scouted the property before I went there to physically hunt. So basically, you know, if I if I get permission through a plat book or now people can use Onyx or whatever, um, typically if I get permission, I'll look at an aerial and uh, kind of get some idea of the lay of the land. Because typically when I go out of state, I'm going to an area that's lightly pressured. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, if you're going to go out of state and spend a lot of money to hunt, you might as well go to an area where your odds <laughs> are pretty good, where there's a lot right. of your bucks. Right. So, um, so I, I, I just look for areas that might give me a hint of where to scout but the first day and a half of a seven to ten day out of state hunt and i always go out of state during michigan's gun season because i don't gun on it but the first day and a half to two days i don't even think of picking up my bow my hmm. first day and a half to two days is 100 percent scouting and look and preparing locations so i do a lot of speed scouting um and i usually go out there in mid-november so the rut has typically been in swing for at least a week, you know, the full rut and pre-rut's been, you know, gone and passed. So there's been a lot of buck activity. So there's going to be scrape areas. There's going to be fresh buck rubs. There's going to be a lot of sign. The runways are going to be well used. And when you go out there at that time, it's relatively 
easy to read the sign and find the pinch point, find the feeding destination locations. Let's say it's a white oak or, or there's a, a primary scrape area. And it's kind of weird because when I'm in Michigan, I would never, ever do that. Hmm. It would That would never work. You can't go in and scout the day before you're going to hunt and then expect to kill something because your intrusion is probably going to make any mature buck avoid that area for a while. But out there, it doesn't seem to matter. Out there, I'll put cameras right on the locations that I prep, and I'll visit those cameras. I totally hunt cameras when I leave out of state. I, I hunt according to what I see in the camera every day in the middle of the day when I check them. In Michigan, I don't even use cameras because they're they're intrusive and they're detrimental to my killing mature buck in Michigan. That's how much difference the pressure makes as far as how the bucks react to human intrusions. Right. So all my all my scouting is done when I'm when I'm there and I'll prep some trees and then I may you know because I hunt out of a saddle you know I have I I can react to visual changes let's say I prep something in 60 yards or 100 yards away I'm visually seeing something because the foliage is going to be down I've got a pretty big visual um, I can see something and I can pull my steps when I come down and then you know the next hunt just walk over there put steps up in a tree find the right tree and and hunt. So I, I can freelance and alter my position really easily, much, much easier than somebody in a tree stand or a climber. Right. So I, I definitely wanted to cover some saddle hunting. And since you kind of mentioned it, I figured, you know, let's just go ahead and dovetail into that now because I am I am getting ready to embark on my first season using using a saddle, um, which I'm looking forward to because I like, I, I like hunting mobile. Um, you know, I, I like to hunt aggressive, you know, to a degree. Um, and more than anything, I, I, I hate carrying a bunch of weight. <laughs> so it seemed like it was a, a good option for me. But I, I know you mentioned prepping your locations. And I know, you know, reading some of your materials and, and watching you on some videos and stuff like that, you have a very specific approach to prepping a, lo- a location um, to be prepared prior to the season, even by the, you know, a point in time you want to be finished in, you know, early spring, if I'm not mistaken. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of walk me through your stand or your saddle location preparation. Well, I do all my scouting in Michigan. I do all of my scouting and location preparation between February and the end of April, prior to spring green up where I'm looking at last season's rut sign. Cause Statistically, in every state in the country, and I've done the statistics, they're in every one of my books for every state, uh, you know, 55 to 65% of pulp and young bucks from every state are taken during the rut phases, which is a three-week period. So if that high of a percentage of the bucks are being taken during that short of a period of the season, that's the time of season I want to key my hunting time around. So I go out postseason scouting. I look for old scrape areas, rub rub lines. I look for destination locations like isolated apple trees, the you know abandoned apple trees in the woods or white oaks, um, clusters of rubs, pinch points, and transition security cover. And to prep a prep a tree, basically, I'm putting in screw in steps if I'm on private property. You know, if somebody gave me permission, <clears throat> I'm putting in screw in steps if I'm on public property. You know, I just kind of mark the area where the tree is. I, I try to clean it up a little bit, but I use strap-on stuff there because you can't use screw-ins. Mm-hmm. And I'll usually go into each season with probably by the end of April, I'll probably have 40 trees prepped. You know, I may only prep 5 to 10 new trees that spring, and then I go back and I clean up all my ones from the previous year. So I might have 40 trees prepped going into season, and then during 
mid-September, because Michigan season opens October 1, during mid-September, I do what's called, a, what I term as a speed tour. So all the bucks that I want to kill, mature bucks are almost always totally rubbed out by September 5th. So if I wait for September 15th to 20th and I go visit my early season locations, like at White Oaks, um, isolated fruit trees, uh, pinch points and transition security cover between bedding and feeding, you know, I will go and obviously if I've got a tree prepped where there's food and nothing, you know, there's no acorns or no apples or no pears falling or there's the crop rotations have changed and the deer aren't using this pinch point that I set up because last year they were going to corn and this year it's beans or something and they're not using it, they're going someplace else. You know, I hunt accordingly, but my speed tour confirms if there's food and it confirms if there's buck sign at that location because that two-week period from the time, two- to three-week period from the time they've rubbed out until I actually do my speed tour, there should be some kind of confirmed buck activity to warrant me hunting there if it is dropping food or, you know, if, if it's working, the scrapes are active. Okay. So it, so you're doing a ton of your, your, your work previously, and then you're kind of, you know, just kind of taking a real quick pass through to kind of confirm what you think is going to be happening before you kind of make your hard and fast decision. And it sounds like the saddle is what kind of allows you to do that because it allows you to be super mobile, you know, super agile and kind of hunt where the, where the most recent sign is being laid down. Right. Yeah, if you have 40, if I have 40 trees prepped, keep in mind with a saddle, I've owned one saddle since 1981. I've exclusively <laughs> hunted out of a saddle since 1981. I wouldn't even consider hunting out of a tree stand. I think they're extremely archaic. And they, the, the advantage of a harness over a tree stand is innumerable. I, I can list them if you'd like. But um, So, you know, I have my saddle with me in my pack. It weighs about two pounds, and I can go to any one of my trees and climb up it and hunt at any time. And I can shoot 360 degrees around the tree. I can use the tree as a blocker, you know, move around the tree so the deer can't see me. Nobody can hunt it when I'm not there. Nobody can steal it. Um, it, it, it it's just got so many different advantages. And yeah. basically, you know, if I'm going to go in on public land, I take my rope steps with me and just as I'm going up because the saddle also has a safety belt. Right. So you can use it as your own as a safety climbing harness, you know, so you have both hands free to put in steps right. as well. So it, it's interesting because, it, I mean, after I started learning about it, I was pretty, you know, naive or, or ignorant, it might be a better word, of saddle hunting overall until recently. And after I started reading about it and watching some videos and, I, I, you know, watched, listened to some stuff that you've talked about in, in terms of saddle hunting and, um, you know, talked to a couple other, you know, buddies who, uh, who saddle hunt and all the advantages are as you had mentioned, are, are almost too many to list. So I'm curious, you know, I mean, I, I feel like there's been a groundswell recently of more and more people being interested in the idea of saddle hunting. Absolutely. No but, doubt about it. Yeah. And, and it only makes sense as people want to be more mobile and they understand like you don't want to burn stands out and you got to kind of be able to move where the sign is and, and, and stuff like that. But I'm curious, you know, I want to get your opinion. Like, why do you think it has taken people this long to start to really, in a meaningful way, start to adopt this this approach right because it's been around to your point for a long time right and but yeah. now it just seems like recently it's become more in vogue so to speak and i'm just curious if you have a thought on why you think all of a sudden it becomes- oh i i know exactly why <laughs> when they first came out uh the tree sling in in the early 80s 1981 i think is the first year it's just a it's just a bunch of seat belt fabric you know it's just a bunch of fabric in a package and you've Obviously, if you go in an archery shop and there's one hanging on the wall, uh, 
odds are really, really high that there isn't anybody in the archery store or whatever sporting goods store you're in that knows anything about it. Right. So they can't talk intelligently about it and explain it. So they say, yeah, you don't want that. You want to use this tree stand because nobody that works in a sporting goods store wants to look like an idiot. So they, they sell around it. And also trophy line, when they came out with their saddle commercially, I think it was in the mid nineties. Um, you know, if I would have bought a trophy line saddle, and I endorsed them because it was the same type of system I was using. But if I'd have bought one and used it the way they showed in their instructional DVD, I would have never, ever hunted out of it. Um, most people that did try them, because they were popular there for a while in the late 90s, uh, they tried them according to the instructions on the DVD, and they're very, very uncomfortable. You have to know, and I... I I'll be more than happy to give you my email address and anybody that wants all the pertinent information on advantages, how to hook up, how to set up a tree, I'll be more than happy to send it. I've got it in a, a regular document that I just you know click on and send. Um, but now there's an actual site, website called saddlehunter.com. And there's a lot of guys that are harness hunting. They're getting new members daily. And there's a new one coming out on the marketplace called the Mantis, like the praying mantis. Mm -hmm. And it's made by a company named Tethered, and it's awesome. It only weighs 15 ounces. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you learn, and it's not that difficult if you have some instruction on how to tether to the tree, you know, how to hang comfortably, um, you'll never, ever look at a tree stand again. But... If you don't learn properly, it's going to be uncomfortable. Right. And, you know, when I first bought mine, nobody knew about it. I just bought it because it looked different. And I took it home. I sat in it, and I was extremely uncomfortable. But I sat, I looked at this thing, and I said, my God, if I can figure out how to make this thing work, it has so many advantages over tree stands. This will up my kill percentages and where I can hunt because trees become unlimited. Big right. trees small trees, tip angled trees. Uh, I just knew if I figured out how to do this. So I, I made a lot of alterations so that it worked for me, and I've never, ever looked back. And, and again, I'd be more than happy to send emails to anybody that sent me an email for saddle information. Yeah, and I will attest that document. I actually uh, I read it this morning on my train ride to work, <laughs> oddly oh, enough. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and, and read through it, and it has everything you could possibly need to know about setting up a saddle. And it's, it, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the, the, the guys from Tethered. I actually had Greg uh, Godfrey for you on here just a couple weeks ago and that was he was the one who kind of introduced me to the idea of a saddle to a degree and i talked to him at length about you know how to get started and stuff like that so i will have one here shortly and i will be i'll be swinging in my backyard and i might be sending you an email saying hey i ended up upside down how do i keep from doing that <laughs> <laughs> that can't that can't happen you cannot fall out of a saddle that's that's physically impossible right. so, <laughs> nobody has ever fell out of a saddle well ever. You, you may not have we, we just met so just hold on it's, uh, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> um so I'm, I'm curious you know i i know you do a lot of prep and you go and you clean up your trees and you clean up your area because you're really reducing your impact overall i know that that's kind of your approach where you want to be scent free and we can talk about the scent stuff here in a little mm. bit and you, you want to be you know scent free sound free you do your prep in advance you know I, i'm curious though <laughs> you know as far as you know clearing cover right so when you're cleaning up a tree and stuff like that like do you i guess i just want to know your approach on kind of shooting you know cutting shooting mm -hmm. lanes and because certain guys like to have limited lanes certain guys like to you know really clear out wide swaths of lanes you know I, I feel like i typically like to 
I, I prefer to have cover versus shooting lanes. Like I'll, I'll miss an opportunity versus <laughs> blow, blowing up my spot, you know, getting busted possibly. But that was in a stand. I feel like I'm teetering now a little bit more now that I'm entertaining the idea of saddle hunting because I can now start to use the tree as my cover and right. position myself in a way to where I'm not going to get busted. So I'm just curious what your approach is on, on clearing out lanes. Before we continue our conversation, let's talk about Wicked Tree Gear saws. Hardcore deer hunters need hardcore tools. Do yourself a favor and check out Wicked Tree Gear, the toughest hand saws and pull saws on earth. You buy it once, you buy it for life, backed by a lifetime guarantee. Right now, if you use the promo code TRUTH, you'll save 20% on your next purchase with free ground shipping. So head over to wickedtreegear.com and get a saw that's tough enough to work as hard as you hunt. I never hunt a place in Michigan. I never hunt a single location more than three times a year. Mm -hmm. The element of surprise is a big, big deal. So I make very wide shooting lanes. And when I get a shooting lane finished on private land, obviously on public land, you're not supposed to cut anything. I'm not saying I don't, but it's I'm a little more minimalist on public land than I am on private. Right. But on private land, I clear probably six to eight foot wide shooting lanes, and they are clear. There isn't a twig or a weed that could encumber a shot to a runway in that given shooting lane. And, you know, like if I'm at a, let's say I'm at a, a white oak tree. Let's say I'm at a tree where I have a shot to a white oak. Now that's a destination spot. So that's a dest or let's say an apple tree out in, in the woods, an abandoned, isolated apple tree. You know, they're coming to that specific spot. So I may only on there, I'd only have a shooting lane to that at, to that location. I'm not going to have a, you know, a wheel spokes like, you know, I would in a bedding area where I'm going to have maybe five different shooting lanes going mm-hmm. in different directions. I'm just going to have a shooting lane to that, to that destination spot or at a scrape area. So, you know, the, the location you're hunting should dictate how many shooting lanes you have and how high up the tree also should dictate how wide they are. What time of season you're hunting them mm-hmm. should dictate how wide they are. If it's an early season location where you're going to have a lot of foliage, uh, yeah, you're going to have to make them pretty wide so you get a shot because you're not going to see the deer coming a lot of times and they pass through those lanes pretty quick. Right. And you're going to have cover in the tree, so it's not going to matter. And with a saddle, you'll typically end up hunting higher because once you get comfortable with it, you definitely will hunt higher than you will in a tree stand. Right. And with the saddle, you can use the tree as a blocker and move around the tree on an as-need basis so the deer, you know, non-targeted deer can't see or even if it's a deer you want to shoot, you know, you don't. You just peek around the tree and look at him, and then when he turns his head in a different direction or whatever, you just spin slightly to the side of the tree and make your shot. Right. And so, I mean, to your earlier points, the element of surprise is key, right? It's like Mm -hmm. cut the shooting lane for the application of the spot, you know, in the time of year, as you had mentioned, but the element of surprise is really your your ace in the hole to a degree. Yeah, and, and, you know, you're in PA, so you know this as well as anybody. Your opportunity... Your second opportunity at a bucket of location in PA or Michigan is mm-hmm. pretty close to zero. Right. So if you don't get that, if you don't make that opportunity work and make that location work on the merits you chose that for and make adequate shooting lanes and you miss that opportunity, you probably won't get it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've experienced that. I, uh, un, unfortunately, I've experienced that pain. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, well but for, it's giving me flashbacks. So we're going to go ahead and move on from that. But, uh, <laughs> um, 
So I want to do a hard transition here and I want to kind of shift gears and talk now a little bit about sign, right? Because there was there was a part of your book that are, I mean, the entire book is a great read and I encourage anyone who's, you know, diehard into, into bow hunting to, to pick up any number of them. But this one, particularly the precision bow hunting, there was a section in it that I really, really enjoyed and I, I thought had some really, really great information. And you really start talking about the hierarchy of sign because I think... I think folks get enamored with different types of sign, different times in your unit. It doesn't always match up to when that sign is most relevant, right? And mm-hmm. I thought you laid out in a really nice, succinct way the the, the priority that you kind of provide, give each piece of sign that you're going to kind of encounter in the timber and when and how you should when and how you should hunt it. So if you wouldn't mind, I kind of want to go through each of them and just kind of get you to talk a little bit about them. And mm-hmm. the first one is that you kind of talk about, and everyone will talk about primary scrapes, right? Like you hear people talk about primary scrape areas. But as I was kind of reading your book, and it's like, and I realized, you know, what a lot of people are referring to as primary scrapes aren't necessarily that, right? And so I started thinking about my own experiences and where I've seen primary scrapes as you kind of as you kind of explained them versus what I had seen that I thought might have been a primary scrape that wasn't. And I quickly realized where those locations were and weren't. Um, based on you know prior experience, so if you wouldn't mind, give us the, the the details of how you kind of define a primary scrape area, what it kind of includes, and how you might go about setting up to hunt it, and what time of year you might hunt it. Okay, primary scrape areas. First off, they are always one hundred percent of the time made where there is good doe activity. Um, to a buck, everything revolves around food, sex, and security. So. Obviously, if you're an apple tree or if you're in a tight pinch point, you know, or you're at a white oak tree or you're at a corner of a crop field or something where deer have to skirt around the corner on the inside corner, any place where there's heavy doe activity, that's the likely places you're going to find primary scrape areas. You eat, Typically, if you find an apple tree out in the woods and it's got apples, odds are really, really high, it's going to end up being a primary scrape area. Bucks are going to visit it. So primary scrape areas are my number one thing that I look for. And I typically save those. I might hunt them if they're active when I do my speed tour. You know, if there's an apple tree dropping apples or white oak dropping acorns and there's not a lot of other oaks in the area, typically if they're dropping, there will usually be a scrape or two. And those are spots that, okay, now I've got confirmed food, and obviously there's does there. That's why the scrapes are there. And I've got confirmed buck activity. So that's a spot I'll put in my early season, you know, first two or three days of bow hunting uh, rotation. And then other than that, primary scrape areas I typically save until pre-rut, which, you know, around October 25th. So once I hunt them the first day or two or three of the season, I'll leave them alone until at least uh, October 25th, depending on the weather. Uh, the second thing I look for would be the mast and fruit trees, you know, that are isolated. They have to have perimeter security cover, and they have to have transition security cover from a known bedding area. That's one thing a lot of people don't get. If you're hunting in a pressured area, everything revolves around security cover. You know, no if if I went and scouted and I found a primary scrape area, and it was right on the edge of a crop field, and that crop field, let's say I set up a location there because I don't know what the crop's going to be the next year. If that crop field was going to be hay or soybeans or anything that was short, I would not hunt that spot that fall. Mm-hmm. No way. 
because a mature buck is not going to come out into an exposed area next to an exposed field and work a scrape in the daytime. Now, if that crop was standing corn, yeah, then he's got immediate security cover butting up to the timber wherever the scrapes are. So he's got security cover to security cover. And let's say I find a scrape area and it's at a white oak tree and there's some open timber between that white oak tree and the bedding area that he'd be coming in, let's say, from an even, for an evening hunt. That location is going to be pretty much worthless because a mature buck that I want to kill is not going to come through that open timber with no understudy mm-hmm. and be exposed to come to that scrape area during daylight hours. That's going to be an after-dark scrape area for him. So you have to not only look at a scrape area or an apple tree or whatever, you have to look at the security cover around it, and it needs to have transition security cover to a known bedding area. They're not going to walk through an open area to come to a a destination location. Now, if it's next to a cornfield, the cornfield is a bedding area. As long as it's standing, a deer could easily, you know, bucks bed in standing corn, they could easily step out of the standing cornfield and walk five or ten yards and work a scrape and have immediate exit security cover if needed. So security cover is a big issue. And bedding areas would be my number three option. I love hunting the interiors of bedding areas. If uh, none of my mast or fruit tree or scrape area locations are active, you know, early season when I do my speed tours, Mm -hmm. I'll hunt on the interiors of bedding areas. And then during the rut phases, it's very common for me to hunt interiors of bedding areas. If I wanted to kill you or anybody listening to us talk, uh, obviously my most opportune place to hide would be in their closet in their bedroom. Right. Because they're going to come in there and bed every day. Bedding areas are destination locations. You know, some of them are different size than others. But if you go in there and do your postseason scouting, you know, in February, March, April, you can spook every deer out of there for three or four days in a row. You can go in there and molest the heck out of that spot and prep a couple bedding area locations and then totally leave them alone until, you know, November 1st. When the rut phase, pre-rut or whatever rut phases start, and then you got to commit to an all-day hunt. You know, if you're going to hunt in a bedding area, you can't hunt mornings or evenings alone because if you hunt mornings, you're going to spook them with your exit. If you hunt evenings, you're going to spook deer in the bedding area with your entry. So you have to commit to saving it for the rut phases, and you have to commit to being on stand an hour and a half before daylight, and you can't leave until at least a half an hour after dark. So you got to be there before the deer come in in the morning, and you got to be there don't leave until after all the deer have gotten up and left the bedding area in the evening. So you're not spooking anything with your entry and exit. Those are my three preferences. Okay. So I have a question about scrapes. So I just want to get your perspective on this. I was talking to a buddy of mine. He, he, uh, he hunts all public land. Um, he, he's got a pretty, uh, prominent, uh, YouTube, uh, a channel, younger fella. Um, and we were talking about, scrapes and hunting scrapes and one thing that he's kind of found and i'm just curious what your thoughts are on this is that you know what he noticed was is that he's seeing scrapes that are kind of happening earlier in the season right and Uh then what he's then finding is that you know pressure pressure hits right because that pre-rut time kind of hits and you know everyone's like i'm gonna hunt over scrapes gonna hunt over scrapes um and then all of a sudden those scrapes dry up right and so then guys say well they're not working scrapes anymore you know but what he's found is like going that level, almost like whenever you walk into the timber, you have to go a level beyond where everyone else is going to walk on public land because you want to be inside that circle where they're going to push deer into where you're going, right? 
he's finding this a similar thing happening with scrapes where it's like the scrapes on the outside of that circle are starting to dry up and he said he's found just magic happened on that secondary and what we were kind of referring to them were like you know secondary scrape lines that are really now the primaries because you've now pushed them off of their normal area where they were comfortable previous or prior to pre-rut now have you ever seen anything like that or do you think that's a possibility or do you you know is that is is that a, a rational way of kind of thinking about that? I'm just curious what your thoughts are. That's that's somewhat rational because a lot of something else a lot of hunters don't understand is, you know, you have the early season where you got a lot of foliage, and you know if 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 there's food, there's going to be scrapes if there's a lot of doe activity at that spot. But then then you go into what I term and a lot of people term the October lull, mm-hmm. and during the October lull, deer not only change their habits and routine and mature bucks turn more nocturnal, not only because of hunting pressure. I mean, hunting pressure is a big, big part of it, but also there's a, there's a security cover change. Mm-hmm. You know, the foliage is dropping, the weeds are tipping over. So, you know, in by October 5th, everything's green by typically October 25th to the end of October, all the leaves have fell, and the whole visual security cover to a deer during that time frame has changed. So they change where they're moving, you know, according to security. They go to places where there's a better security cover to transition through. So that, that could make a reason for the change in the scrape areas. And it also could be because the crops, if if scrape areas were put in a specific location due to a preferred crop field, and then that gets picked and turned over by the farmer, well, that's not a preferred crop field anymore. So whatever doe activity that was transitioning to that crop field is not transitioning there anymore. So that's why that particular scrape area that was in conjunction with that crop is no longer being worked. Or if it's in conjunction with acorns or apples, the apples have dropped now and they're all gone. So obviously those scrapes are going to become inactive because there's no doe activity there or same deal with the white with the acorns you know if there's not a lot of oaks in an area and the turkeys and the deer consume them all well then those scrapes are going to dry up because now there's no doe activity all doe activity i mean all scrape activity revolves around doe activity and it's also very common in big public land areas where it's almost all timber you don't see a lot of scrapes in big timber areas deer tend to wander you know, because they don't have crop fields and they browse on, you know, leaves and grasses and stuff like that. So that it's it's very hard to pattern anything in big timber areas and, and scrape areas are very uncommon. You go you go out west where, you know, it's 60 to 70 percent ag and 30 percent timber. Man, oh, man. I mean, there's scrapes every place. Right. It's, you know, ag areas are much more, scrape areas are much more prevalent in ag areas than in big timber. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings for just about everything for shooting hunting and the outdoors check out midwayusa.com so i want to talk a little bit about you know staging right because one of the things that i know that you kind of talk about a little bit is field edge edge staging 
versus rut staging areas because I never really had thought about this before and you know and I'll, and I'll preface it a little bit and ask you to kind of further explain it and, and and make more sense of it than me but the rut staging areas really kind of had me intrigued because what you were kind of talking about a little bit was you know that a buck's going to try to find a doe right whenever you hit a certain a certain time of year uh-huh. and you're looking to not necessarily you know, intercept him whenever he's hitting a food source or what have you. What you're looking for is that he's going to have to bed down somewhere near a travel corridor for that he anticipates or knows that does will pass through, right? Yeah. And so yep. that is so. Just talk to me a little bit about that because I found that pretty fascinating. I never thought of that kind of approach to rut staging areas. I've always kind of thought of food staging areas, and I think that's the most common way people think about it, right? Like, what's the place pe- deer sure. are going to go to kind of meander until it gets you know 10 minutes before dark and they hit they hit a food source or whatever but the rut staging thing was a really interesting concept that i really liked well the rut staging deal versus the food staging most most writers and you see it on tv all the time i i think almost 99.9 percent of tv hunters don't know squat (laughs) i mean i hate to be that blunt i don't (laughs) care who it is i think you know hunting in kansas and iowa the areas they hunt most people could kill the same deer they're killing and why people do what they do and assume it's going to work in a pressured area blows my mind right. actually yeah. but a field edge staging area I, I totally abandon those i don't even deal with field edge staging areas anymore because a big buck a mature buck in a pressured area is not going to get up and move and make himself vulnerable in the evening to go stage next to a, a crop field waiting for does to come through so uh, those field edge staging areas, and I did write a chapter on those in my first book, Boning Pressured Whitetails, in 2002 I wrote it. Mm-hmm. But I've totally abandoned that because they just don't work in pressured areas as far as warranting the percentage of opportunities versus the time spent hunting on stand at those. But a rut phase staging area is basically could be along the edge of a bedding area. Let's say they're bedding on just on the inside edge of a bedding area, or let's say they're, they're bedding in a funnel of transition cover between a crop field and a bedding area and you know they're just bedding in spots where and they don't do this until typically pre-rut or rut they don't do this anytime prior to that but they'll they'll stage there in the morning they'll they'll come out of the field well before daylight stage in these transition zones and then with the deer transition through there they'll either stage on the downwind side of the transition zone so they can just scent check them while they're bedded or they'll actually get up and go over and check does as they come through so that that's the difference between a, a rut phase staging area you know that's it's typically going to be in some semblance of cover mm-hmm. again everything is security cover and perimeter security cover for the kill zone everything is based on that um, whereas a feeding staging area is and you see it they i mean feeding staging areas happen out west all the time Mm-hmm. Because there's so many mature bucks and there's there's just no hunting pressure. And a mature buck has no issue getting up at, let's say, 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon and moving through the timber and staging next to a exposed crop field where does are going to come and move through, you know, late in the evening to go out and feed. Right. But you just don't see that in pressured areas. Right. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. So I'm curious, you know, you were, you were talking a little bit about, you know, those, those – um, the, the big woods is just different, right? Whenever when it comes to deer movement and so forth, do you Very. have do you have any kind of a, approaches or how a, a way to define 
staging areas when you get into the big woods. I mean, I know it's a lot looser um, as far as like, you know, the, what you're going to look for in terms of sign or anything like that is just not going to be nearly as concentrated. But do you have any kind of like rules of thumb to, to locate staging areas in the big woods? Always, I always gravitate, gravitate to security cover. And typically in big woods, you're going to have terrain feature, what I call terrain feature dumps. You may have a, an oak ridge that dumps down into a swamp, and maybe it's got a saddle running along the bottom side of it. Uh, you know, deer tend to travel through saddles mm-hmm. because saddles are lower ground. They have more moisture in the ground. Therefore, there's more vegetation in the ground, so there's more security cover in the form of brush and weeds and stuff like that. So deer tend to travel through through saddles a lot because they're low spots. Whereas when you get up into the timber up on the hills, it's more open, so they're they're more vulnerable during daylight hours. So when I'm in big timber, I always gear, I always, even when I go out west, even though out west I've watched 150-inch A-points walk across a grass field an inch and a half tall in the middle of the day, I still, even when I go out there, I gravitate every everything towards, I want perimeter security cover, around the kill zone where I'm actually located and I want perimeter or I want transition security cover to a known bedding area. As long as you hunt security cover, and I'm not talking about being in the middle of a big brushy, thick, you know, right. Bunch of crap. I'm just talking about having, having some semblance of security cover that a deer, a mature buck can feel comfortable walking through or along where he has got instant two second exit route option. And as long as a person always gravitates everything around some semblance of perimeter security cover at the kill zone and transition security cover to a bedding area, he's going to do very, very well. Right. So I don't know if I answered your question exactly. No, you, 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 you did. I mean, I think, that, I think the takeaway really for the, for the big woods is that it's tough. <laughs> you know what I mean? Big I woods is very difficult. Yeah. I, I exclusively hunted big woods for 20 years in Northern Michigan and very, very difficult and that's why, because, because again, there are no, de- there's very, very few, if any, destination locations. Mm-hmm. Deer tend to browse and wander. You know, a deer in northern Michigan might have a three to five mile core area. A deer in southern Michigan, where there's a lot of ag and a lot of does, he might have a one mile core area. I'm not saying it's in one square mile, but right. 640 acres combined of all the air- areas that he's moving through. And when I go out of state, that's one thing I definitely gravitate to. I want to, I always, when I'm looking at aerials, I'm looking for properties that are 60 to 80% ag, because when I go, all the crops are down mm-hmm. and all the deer can find in 20% of the land. Right. And it's much, 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 much simpler because everything's bedded in 20% of the property now. Yeah, I was looking for a challenge this year, so I, I went with my buddy to a, a big woods uh, piece of public in in southern Ohio last year. And that was, I mean, the terrain was tough just in general. Um, and it was all you oh. know, previously clear cut and stuff like that. And, I mean, there was some great deer there to be had. Age structure was awesome. Um, I got... I didn't get shut out. I saw three bucks, just nothing I was wanting to pull my bow back on. But man, that was just some, like, you just felt like some days you were going crazy. You know what I mean? Cause you were like, there should be, everything's telling me there should be deer here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. like, you just weren't, weren't seeing anything. Um, so it was definitely a, it was a learning experience. It was a humbling experience, which I think, you know, in hunting is always good to have those. Sometimes it, uh, knocks you back a peg or two and lets you know you have plenty to learn yet. But so on a, sh- on a short term hunt, big timber is not your friend. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a uh, for sure. Yeah. It was, it, it was, a it was a long eight days, shall we, shall we say. So, you know, 
few deer, but nothing to, to yep. write home about. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about scrape lines because I know that this kind of falls, you know, very low. I think at the bottom of your hierarchy of of a sign that you like to like to approach. And um, it, what you had talked about a little bit, or what I kind of thought was really interesting, is everyone always kind of tries to figure out how to dissect scrape lines and rubs and and is it a mature buck is it not a mature buck is it a subordinate buck you know what you know what type of buck is making making this rub and you hear all types of takes on it but what i read from you really made it a lot of a lot of sense and then i fortuitously you just recently released or deer and deer hunting just recently released a video of you kind of talking about this exact subject so if you wouldn't mind kind of you know, walk us through whenever you're looking at rubs, like what you're looking for, what are they telling you, and then how are you kind of deciphering that information? Okay. Well, first off, when I'm scouting endurance season in Michigan, I said I don't use cameras, so I have no clue what's on the property. I never have an idea in Michigan what's on the property. I totally hunt sign. Uh, so I look at buck rubs as I look at the height that they are. You know, typically, if you're a year and a half old or two and a half year old buck, you've got short. The antlers aren't real high off your head. The tines are kind of short. You're not that tall. They're not that tall. So the the rubs are going to be kind of down low. They're going to be maybe three foot off the ground and to two foot off the ground. As bucks age, they get taller. Their necks get t- longer. Their antlers get taller off, higher off their head, and their tines are longer. So the rubs are going to be three, four, some, you know, maybe even. They have tine grooves five, five and a half feet up the tree. So the height of the rub has a lot to do with the age of the rub. The higher the, the, higher the rubs, the older the deer. Uh, as far as scra- you know, scrape lines, that's basically a buck's route. That's a specific buck's routine route where he's going from point A to point B. And I definitely will hunt. A, if, if I see a scrape line and it's like pre-rut, mm-hmm. you know, late October, early November, uh, or if I even see a scrape line, if I if I see one before season in my speed tours, I know it's a mature buck because subordinate bucks, year and a half old bucks, don't make scrapes very very rarely prior to getting into the season. They don't. They just don't make scrapes in September. So I know it's going to be at least a two and possibly a three and a half year old buck. And typically, if you see a scrape line, there's going to be rubs along it as well. So the rubs along the scrape line are going to kind of give you an idea of how old he is by how tall the rubs are. But active scrape lines are are definitely a good place to hunt when you're postseason scouting. If you see a, a scrape line, you know I don't know if that buck got killed or not. Right. Whereas if I see a primary scrape area, those are usually annual. Whether you know those are all the bucks in the area typically visit scrape areas, whereas a scrape line is typically one one deer's scrapes along his route. Right. So, but if I see an active scrape line during season, absolutely, I'll freelance in and I'll set up on it. And I've killed my biggest buck I ever shot was freelance hunting. You know, just steps on my in a fanny pack and walking through the woods and setting up on sign of 180 incher. <laughs> That's a nice freelance job right there. It's not. <laughs> yes, that was. <laughs> and I've and I've killed several book bucks just freelance, just putting my stuff on and walking into the timber and hunting nice. all so, evenings, obviously. Right. So, so what about rub lines? Like, is there anything you take from a rub line? Is there any information that tells you a, a, about a deer? You know, is there you know? Because I know sometimes it's sometimes it can be helpful, sometimes times not. Like, you're not quite sure what size the deer was that made that or how mature it was. You know, in terms of the rubs, is it anything you take from that? 
exactly the same as a scrape line. If I'm out postseason scouting and I see a rub line, it's totally irrelevant to me. Mm-hmm. Um, if I see a rub line uh, during, you know, pre-rut or maybe just prior to season, and it's tall rubs and they're, you know, and they're obviously that year's rubs, yeah, there's a very good chance I might. You know, set up on it and on it, on it one evening or one morning, depending on the location. But it's got to have; it has to have security cover. Right. It has to have security cover along. If it doesn't have security cover to transition down, no, I will. You know, you can you see the TV guys hunting rub lines and scrape lines on TV and open timber. You know, you watch Michael Waddell walking through the woods with a climber on his back and jumping in a tree in open timber and killing a big buck. That doesn't happen in real hunting. That right. just does not happen <laughs> that way. So they do things that the normal hunter can't do. It's kind of like sports. Right. You know, LeBron James, Michael Jordan, uh, Tiger Woods, uh, th- those guys rise to the top of their sport because they competed in middle school, high school, college, and then even in the pros, and they outperformed all of their competitors on the same types of, you know, field or court or golf course or whatever. Right. And hunting, the TV guys don't compete with anybody. Right. They are not professionals. They're entertainers. Right. And it has there's nothing like sports sports people that actually had to compete with tens of thousands of people people in the same fields and to get to the top of their sport. In in hunting, those guys hunt properties that nobody else can hunt. They have zero competition. Right. I mean that's an interesting interesting way to look at it, entertainment versus versus hunt, hunting to a degree. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. I never really kind of thought it in that in, in that way, but that's kind of exactly what they're, what they're, what they're doing. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's entertainment and I'm, I'm sure, you know, for some folks it has its place, but I mean, for a person like that's not a good kind of judge or barometer to set your goals against, right? Because, you well, just... you can't set your goals against them. I guess the thing that I struggle with is people that are hunting in PA and Virginia and Michigan, to watch those shows and then try to mimic what those guys are doing and expect it to work in the areas you're hunting, mm-hmm. it just that just doesn't work. You know, if if you're a bass fisherman and you could take a novice bass fisherman that could cast and just barely cast and retrieve a line and you could put him on a farm pond that never gets fished and he'll catch lots of bass. <laughs> you take that same fisherman and you put him on a public lake where they hold local tournaments now and then and he gets fished every day, he probably wouldn't catch a legal bass in an entire day because he doesn't know how to do it. Right. You know? Yeah, I, I would be I would be the latter of bass fishermen. <laughs> my my fishing skills are, are are not good. I will stick to uh, hunting out of a tree. I'm, I'm I'm more equipped to uh to do that. That's for sure. Um, the one thing I found interesting when you were talking about rubs, I've, I've I think it's I, I think I read it in the book. I think it's where I've, I, I kind of come across it. Was you know I've always struggled with understanding how to read a rub and know like you know. And I know you kind of talked a little bit about time length and, and stuff like that, and how mm-hmm. high it is on the tree. But the thing that I really kind of took away was. You know, when a when a, a tree is shredded, right? Like there's this more mature bucks typically, or tend to. I won't say typically, might be the wrong way to say it, but tend to have this purling that's at their bases, oh. right? And that yeah. is really kind of like when you see something that's shredded. You know, not a hundred percent because nothing's a hundred percent certain, but you can probably with pretty good with pretty good certainty say that that is a, an older deer for that property if the tree is kind of sh- looking like shredded wheat because other, you know, a deer would need some purling on their on their bases to be able to pull that off, right? It it would still have to be higher up the tree. Okay, still it, higher up the tree. It's still the height has to be there. 
Uh, but yeah, as bucks age, it is more common for an older buck to have purling and abnormal points, you know, maybe fork brow tines or some other little kicker points and, and you know, scrape the tree up a little bit more. But still, uh, that rub would be higher up the tree, you know, and, and also another indicator of, of rubs is if you got your main rub, let's say it's three to four feet high, you know, you know, which is pretty high, and then eight to ten inches above the actual main rub, you've got little tick marks in the bark, you know, that means that buck's got long tines, too, because right. the tips of those tines are, are biting into the tree and making little tick marks in the tree, too. So right. that's another indicator. Right. So, so one thing, there's, I hear you talk about hunting, hunting weather, right? I've heard you talk about that, videos, books, what have you. So I'm just curious, you know, what's your approach to, to hunting weather? What weather do you like to hunt? What do you like to avoid? You know, what are days that you won't go out and, and, and get into your saddle? Uh, there's no day that I won't <laughs> go out and get into my saddle. If I've got the time off work and it's the right time of season, right. uh, I'm going to go. But my probably my favorite hunting weather would be a drizzle rain with a, with a light breeze. I, I like to have mature bucks like to move where they're not making noise. If mm-hmm. there's one thing I've learned about mature bucks in a pressured area, especially, you know, when they move in the evening, if it's dry out and it's nice, sunny bluebird day, they'll take a step and they'll stand there for 20 seconds and listen for a reaction. <laughs> you know, right. they just, they just hate making noise. So on a drizzly day, they're much more apt to move with a, with a purpose and move more quickly. So they're covering more area, which obviously raises a hunter's opportunities because they're covering more area during the daylight hours. Mm-hmm. And wind is the same way, you know, wind man asks their movement noise just like rain does. I don't like hunting in a heavy rain, but any light precipitation, whether it be rain or, you know, snow, uh, those are are my preference. And then during the full moon phase, if the full moon is out at night with no cloud cover, I really like to key on hunting midday the next day Hmm. during the rut. This is during the rut phases, by the way, not, not early season. During the rut phases... I key on the midday the next day if the full moon is out that night with no cloud cover because the mature bucks don't like moving in a full moon after dark that much out in exposed areas, so they move a lot more the next day in the middle of the day. Right. So yeah, that's it's. I'm I'm glad you kind of brought up the moon because I was going to ask you if the moon, kind of the red moon, etc., underfoot overhead, you know, if that's something you subscribe to or do you not pay much attention to it, or or does weather kind of you know, dictate, you know, your, your, your approach to a degree. I know you hunt any day you have the ability to go hunt, but you know, if you could kind of pick which things are most important to you to kind of say, I'm going to go hunt my, my best spot today, you know, what would that be dictated by moon or more so weather? Moon, other than a, other than a full moon with no cloud cover, me hunting in the middle of the day and the next day, moon, moon phases have absolutely zero to do with my hunting decisions. I used to do a lot of shining back in the late 60s and maybe into the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, the shining used to be a big deal. Everybody oh, used yeah. to do it. And um, it was very interesting because I took notes. I always take mental notes of everything and write a lot of stuff down. When there was a full moon out, right? You know, as soon as it got dark, if the moon was up high and, you know, it was up for another three or four hours, you wouldn't see any, hardly any two and a half year old bucks back then there wasn't 
you hardly ever saw a three and a half year old because we had a million hunters, gun hunters, and they killed everything. There wasn't any management whatsoever. But you'd hardly ever see a decent buck. Now, if you took and it was a full moon, but yet it was cloud cover or light drizzle rain, so it was gray out, so it was basically dark because the moon was totally covered. You'd see a lot of you'd see a lot of decent bucks. So the moon phase had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was the weather revolving around the the moon phase interesting yeah i used to like go and shine when i was a kid that was always that was even in like the you know late 80s and early 90s i still enjoyed doing that i might need to bust out the the the, the old spotlight here one evening and, <laughs> and, and take a cruise down memory lane just for old time's sake you, you know what i don't I mean? think i've went shining since the early 80s <laughs> <laughs> well if i if i happen to go i'll i'll, uh, I'll shoot you an email and let you know how it went let you know how much fun it was um, you know, I, I know we've been talking for about an hour and there's, there's a, a pile of things we could jump into. And I feel like we probably need to have like a follow up, um, podcast sure. with you and talk more about like your scent regimen. Cause I know that that's something that you, you know, you take seriously and stuff like that. But before okay, I do zero like, attention to the wind, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's a, so, so, I mean, if, if you're game for it, you, do, do you mind diving into some of the scent control and wind and wind stuff on another podcast or yeah. right now? Uh, either or, whichever, whichever, whichever works yeah, for you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm game. I've got time. Cool. All right. Yeah. So let's so let's dive into that, man. I know that you are a a um, a believer in scent lock. Not not just a believer. It's it's worked for you for for years. Um, and you kind of use that technology the way it's supposed to be used. And you know, and and, and it's helped you kill a multitude of deer. And allows you to kind of approach the wind much different than any anyone else approaches it. So if you wouldn't mind. You know, just give give a rundown of what your 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 scent regimen is, and you know how it allows you to to not worry about the wind per se. Well, first off, I have to clarify what you started with. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a huge advocate of activated carbon, right? And Scentlock just happens to own the U.S. patent on using activated carbon in hunting clothing, so that's why I am a Scentlock freak. Right. If somebody else owned the patent, it'd be whoever that would be. Because right. I've known about activated carbon for years, and I know how absorptive it is. It's the most absorptive substance known to man, and it's used in literally thousands of applications worldwide. It's in chemical warfare suits. It's in your water softeners. It's it's just it, it's in all all sorts of things. I mean, that it works as designed can't be argued, basically. Right. But. I I bought a Scentlock suit in the mid-90s. In about 1999, I finally got to the point where I learned how to properly care for it because they don't give you the proper instructions, in my opinion, even though they make it. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to properly deabsorb it. Mm-hmm. It's not reactivation. You can't reactivate it. You've got to deabsorb it because reactivating it means putting it at 1,450 degrees Fahrenheit under pressure, which obviously you can't do. Right. So you deabsorb it in the dryer and then throw it in an airtight container so it's not absorbing odors, because it's absorbing all the time. It can't differentiate whether you're hunting or whatever. Right. It's always absorbing. So I, in 19, by the 1998, I was doing testing as far as with deer during the October lull when I wasn't too concerned about getting any opportunities at mature bucks, so I was kind of testing my scent regimen on does, and um, I got to the point where I pay, I pay absolutely no attention to wind direction whatsoever. It's totally 100% irrelevant. 
the only time wind direction plays any part in my hunting is if I'm setting up a location at a primary scrape area. If I'm setting up a location at a primary scrape area, which might be at a oak tree or might be at an apple tree, if there's an adequate tree on the south east side of the location and it offers a good shot to the destination location, I will probably set that tree up because it's not uncommon, and I've killed two monster bucks that came in and during the pre-rut and sent check the scrapes from downwind. Hmm. So I'll usually set off 15 to 20 yards off the actual scrapes. So I've got a 15 to 20 yard shot to the scrapes. And then if a buck comes in 30 yards downwind of the scrapes, in predominantly the winds out of the northwest in the fall, so I'm on the southeast side, if he comes down, you know, 30 yards downwind of the scrapes to scent check it, he doesn't actually come to the scrapes. I've still got a 20-yard shot to that animal. So on that situation, I will not only have a shooting lane to the actual scrapes, I'll have a shooting lane to the downwind side of it as well. So I'm not, it has nothing to do with my scent control. I'm just setting it up that way because that's a possibility of a mature buck checking it from from downwind and not actually coming into the actual scrape area. But other than that, I pay zero attention to wind direction. Right, And And I used to pay 100% attention to wind direction. There was places, you know, when I had to pay attention to wind, there was places I quit hunting. I quit hunting sides of ridges. I quit hunting in saddles because of wind thermals and currents. Uh, There was, you know, some of my best locations during the rut phases I couldn't hunt because the wind direction wasn't right during the days I had off work. So, uh, once you can get it to, you don't have to pay attention to wind direction and you never get winded, your, your kill percentage goes up 50% right there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Beating a deer's nose. It's a, if you can do that consistently, man, it's, it's, uh, I, I imagine that it makes a, a world, a world of difference. I mean, you, I mean, you, I know in reading some of your stuff, it's like you are completely kind of head to toe, right? It's gloves, it's, it's head cover. It's oh, absolutely the whole nine, right? Like to Absolutely. To, and it, that I'm glad you said that because the TV guys, even the guys that scent lock sponsors, have no clue what they're doing with their scent lock clothing. Mm-hmm. They wear a jacket and a pant, and they may wear gloves, and they got on some dumb logo hat with their hair hanging out, or they got a beard, or they got face paint. If you've got any of that stuff, you've just blown your scent regimen. You can't wear a jacket and a pant and say, okay, well, that's good enough. I'm done. No, it doesn't work that way. It's like driving a car with three wheels. You've got to do it all. You've got to cover. You've got to have a head cover on. When you're hunting, you don't have to wear it into your tree and up the tree. But once you get on stand, you've got to put on a head cover with a drop-down face mask, where basically the only thing exposed is your eyes. If you have a beard, it's covering your beard. It's covering the hair in the back of your neck. 40% of your odor comes out of your head. Right. So you've got to have that. And you also have to do other things. You've got to wear clean rubber boots. You've got to, if you wear a backpack, you've got to wash your backpack now and then in non-scent detergent and store it in an airtight container. You know, lots of guys have had the same backpack for five years, and they reload it every day with their bare hands during season. You know, their garments, they're altering garments, and, you know, every time you get done with a hunt, you reload it for the next hunt with their bare hands. So you can wear a scent lock suit and have it 100% everything doing it correctly, and then you get winded and you blame it on a suit, when in reality you got a huge human scent wick in the tree with you in the form of your backpack that you haven't washed for five years. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so. if anybody wants the Snutlock information, I they can email me on that too. Just email me. I need scent control information. Nice. I'll send you a litany of information on it. So you mentioned something like I. So you mean to tell me that the face paint doesn't matter? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe people wear face paint. That just blows my mind. They try to look like an Indian. They try to look cool. The dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it just lures the deer right in. I mean, it's like, hey, who wouldn't want to hang oh. out with a cool guy with with face paint on? You know, you gotta. I'm just kidding. Wow, and so, beards. You yeah. know, I shave my armpits. I cut my hair as short as I can cut it in the during season. The all that stuff is breeding ground for bacteria. Yeah. And bacteria is where you get your odor from. So, yeah, you've got to wear the head cover, activated carbon-lined head cover with the activated carbon-lined uh, face mask. And obviously, when you get ready to take a shot, you just reach up with, if you're right-handed, with your, you just reach up with your right hand and pull the face mask down under your chin so it doesn't impede your anchor point. Right. I mean, you don't shoot with the face mask up. You pull that down when you take your shot. Right. Yeah, of course, because that'll mess with your anchor points and, and all that stuff that you're kind of been comfortable with over the year. So right. I want to jump into, I know when we did the, uh, before we started recording, I had mentioned a, a good buddy of mine um, had a couple questions that he wanted to kind of toss out there and get your get your uh, perspective. He's a big time public land mm-hmm. hunter. He's, you know, um, He's been he's a super successful dude, you know, at it, and uh, I got a lot of respect for him, and he, and he has a, a tremendous amount of respect for you. So, I uh, I sent him a text and said, hey, I'm going to talk to John this evening, and said, hey, do you want to you have any questions? You want me to try to tee up if we have some time? And he he tossed a few my way. So if you wouldn't mind uh, to in, indulge us here, I'll, I'll kind of toss a few of these to you and see uh, and see what your thoughts are. Um, so Give it a shot. Yeah. So so the first one is is he was kind of wondering. So when you know, like when slash how and, and why you know, you transition from your early season spots to pre-rut or rut spots? You know, is it is it sign-related that makes you make that move from that transition from early to, to pre-rut or rut, or is it the time of year that's kind of dictating that? And, and specifically in an area that might be new to you, whether it's out of state or just a new property in general to you? Well, if I'm in Michigan, it's just history has told me that hunting during the lull is almost a waste of time. I think of, I think of my 31 book bucks from michigan i think one of them was taken during the october lull and i i still hunt during the october lull occasionally but they're not in my obviously they're not in my good rut phase locations i leave those for the rut but Mm -hmm. um so so basically i hunt i hunt pretty hard the first two three possibly even four days depending on the weather of season and and again michigan season opens october 1st and then I, I just really slack off on my hunting. I, I just don't take hunting seriously at, at all until around the 25th of October. Mm-hmm. And then I go in and I'm hunting my rut phase locations that I haven't even been to since last April or March. Mm-hmm. You know, they they are clean. And I'm not, to, you know, and uh, there's always other hunters on the property. I don't, I've never hunted a property by myself. So I've always got other hunters on the property. So, you know, I, I can't control what they do, but I know I've kept them clean, so I've done my part. And uh, But then that's usually about October 25th is when I transition into pre-rut. And, my, and pre-rut's my favorite time done. When that's October 25th, uh, probably November 5th, because the does haven't came into estrus yet, the majority. And 
the testosterone levels have risen in the bucks to the point where they actually, the mature bucks, they actually will get up and start searching for those early estrus does. Because in a lot of areas where you got a lot of does, some does do come into estrus early. So they will get up and start searching for those. But it's usually during midday. It's usually between 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock. It's kind of an interesting stat. Um, of the 20, 21, 20, let me see, 20 of the bucks I've shot during the rut phases in Michigan, which is a, a two-week time frame mm-hmm. prior to the gun season, 20 of the bucks from November 1st to November 14th, of the 20, seven of them were taken between 11 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So while my time spent during midday was very minimal percentage-wise. My hours on stand during midday was very minimal compared to mornings and evenings. My kill rate was hmm. over 33%. It was third, about 35%. Right. Is so that, that midday thing is a big, big deal. And again, it's not just hunting midday. you got to be in the right types of locations. you got to have transition security cover from bedding area to where you're at. But right. they, they check their scrape areas, and they're very routine during pre-rub mature bucks. When they do that midday thing, they're checking their scrape areas. They're going to the oak trees that are dropping acorns still or apple trees that are dropping apples or whatever the food source may be, and they're staying in security cover, and they're checking their core area for possible early estrus does. Now, would you say the higher percentage of those killed in that instance are um, – are you hunting scrapes or are you – were they were you hunting scrapes or were you hunting more of those rut staging areas? They were – all at scrapes and typically a rut typically a rut staging area is a scrape area right yeah because they're i mean because there's heavy doe activity and that's why they're staging there they put their scrapes there because it's a heavy doe traffic area right so they're they're staging at their scrape areas Hmm. all right so this next one is kind of not but they weren't but let me let me take that back a little bit okay. because these bucks I shot in the midday, so they weren't staging. They were moving through these scrape areas during midday. But, yes, they would be the same types of scrape areas that you would morning hunt mm-hmm. as a staging, you know, because they're going to come in and stage. Right. And on a morning hunt, if you're going to uh, morning hunt at a staging area during the rut phases, you got to be in your tree at least an hour and a half before daylight because right. they're going to come in and bed down and stage probably a half hour to 40 minutes before daylight. Right. you got to be there and then – you know, hopefully get them after they get up and move later in the morning. Right. And I know you like to get into the tree pretty, uh, pretty, pretty early and, and, and beat the rooster yeah. to the tree pretty much. So. Well, mature bucks move a lot, you know, mature bucks in pressured areas, they usually go in and bed down before daylight and you got to be in there before they do that. Right. So. And not just in there, but you need to be in there set up quiet, you know, and ready Correct. to, for them to approach. Quiet. Yeah. You need to be set up and quiet an hour and a half before daylight. Yeah. So this next yeah. one is, you know, we're going to assume you're hunting scrapes for this for this scenario, and it's the last week of October is the scenario, you know, and, and the question really is, what's your game plan for for where you plan to hunt in the, in the instance that a scrape is going cold early? You know, what are your thoughts on it's it's late October, you know, you're usually planning to hunt over scrapes. Um, the scrapes in the area you're planning to hunt have gone cold. Like, what are your thoughts as to why they've started to go cold? And it's, let's assume we're not on a field edge or near a field edge, because I know you'd mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that that scrapes along field edges, once the once the food source kind of becomes null and void, that scrape's going to dry up. So let's kind of take a different approach. That's an easy one. Scrape areas dry up because that's when does start, actually, when the majority of the does start coming into estrus, so this is usually 
early in November, not necessarily late October. Mm-hmm. When the majority of the does start coming into estrus, there's so few mature dominant bucks in pressured areas that they they no longer have to go and work their scrapes. They're with does. They're doed up pretty much all the time because as soon as they are with a doe or maybe two does and they go through their 28 to 36 hour estrus cycle, breed them every 20 minutes, half hour, whatever. Uh, once their estrus cycles are over, they don't have to typically go very far before they intercept the next hot doe. You know, that next hot doe may be with a two and a half year old a point, but that, three-and-a-half-year-old buck's going to take him, take him away from her and try and corral her back into a secure bedding area and do the breeding during her the rest of her cycle. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very common for scrapes to start being getting dried up after the, you know, once the does, majority of the does start entering their estrus cycles. That's extremely common. Right. And I know you mentioned earlier that you know, and it's, scrapes are kind of dictated by does, right? That's like, that's what's happening. Bucks do act, by doe activity. By do yeah. activity, right. So, you know, with, with that, you know, if, if the scrapes are kind of being, if, if does who are coming in late are dictating the, that scrape activity, do you, what do you mean, st- what do you mean coming in late? So they're, they're coming in. So they're, they're beginning to, uh, they're, they're the, those who are coming in later into estrus, right? So it's the back okay. half maybe, right. Of the, yep. of that okay. cycle. So if they're start, if they're coming in late and that's, what's kind of creating the doe activity, but you could guess there's a bell curve with this stuff, right? So it's on the back end of the bell curve where you're not in the prime time where most of your does are going to be creating the activity. Um, do you, are you still going to concentrate on those scrapes or do you start to transition more to covering doe bedding area and some of those kind of like, uh, rut staging areas? Typically during the rut, I am at a scrape area or I am in a bedding area okay. because it, once the majority of the scrape air, scrape activity will actually start picking up again. Once mm-hmm. the majority of does are bred because mm-hmm. then the mature bucks actually have to go out and start searching again for late estrus does. It's exactly the same as pre-rut. It's just Hmm. past rut as opposed to pre-rut. Right. So now those bucks have to actually go out and start searching for does, and it takes them time because there's not that many does in estrus at that time. So they go back to following the same, you know, scrape area routes that they were doing during pre-rut that they had abandoned during the peak rut when they were with does most of the time. So, yeah, those same scrape areas are def- fact the that 180 inch I shot on that freelance hunt was at a scrape area during post rut. It was the the rut was actually the majority of the does in the area were already bred. It was I think November uh, 27th or something like that. And that was an out of state hunt, and that buck was definitely without question uh, searching. You know his old scrape areas and working them the scrapes it where i was at where i found where i set up were very very active hmm. and he and it was kind of weird because when i shot him his eyes were drawn i mean he had been breeding and he'd lost all of his weight when i skinned him his meat was purple hmm. and he'd lost all his weight his eyes were sunk into his head i mean he was just wore out hmm. and he still was out looking for more does, <laughs> those late estrus does. So bedding areas, post-rut is always within bedding areas, and at scrape areas where there has to be a, a lot of security cover, especially if I'm in a state like Michigan, because 
if you're talking like after gun season, man, your odds of getting a big, this was in Iowa where I killed that 180 incher. Right. If you're talking in Michigan, you know, once opening day of gun season and you put 700,000 gun hunters out in the woods, mm-hmm. your odds of killing something during post ruts pretty slim. I think I've killed two, two book bucks in Michigan in almost 50 years uh, with my bow in December. So that's a real skinny. Now I would have, I prefer my preference when I go out of state is to hunt post rut. Because, because exactly what I said, you know, Thanksgiving from Mm -hmm. about the 22nd of November until the 1st of December. So basically when, when you are going to do that, you're limited to about two or three states. You're limited to Ohio, Mm -hmm. Iowa, and Kansas. Because right. they have very late gun seasons, where you can still hunt that Thanksgiving time frame prior to the opener of their gun season. And the reason being is the mature bucks are just drawn down. They're wore out. I think they've lost a lot of their security cover precautions, and they're just moving, and they're just looking for those late estrostos. And they seem to throw caution to the wind. They just... Mm. They just move differently. They're, they're just worn out, but they're still they you know they still want they've still got the drive to breed. Right, they still got so that. They're buy. going, yeah, they're going back to their preseason routine of checking scrape areas and skirting the edges of bedding areas, and um, but but they just seem to have thrown caution more to the wind, so they're they're a little less on edge. That's interesting because I've always kind of contemplated headed out to heading out to Ohio because I always go you know I spend some time during the during the rut. In, in Ohio, and I've always contemplated going out during that that Thanksgiving time frame. And now you've kind of you've kind of kind of intrigued me. Now I might have to uh, make a if I don't tag out this uh, earlier part of November, I might have to make a secondary trip out there and and put some time in after uh, after Thanksgiving. So two years ago, I got invited to hunt this guy's property in Southern Ohio, and uh, they him and his buddy had gun hunted it and bow hunted it. They shot at this big ten point two different times during gun season, and they didn't kill him and I killed him on my second evening bow hunt, and it was 150-inch 10-point. <laughs> and that was in, I think, December 15th. That's awesome. And he was he was checking scrapes. Nice. So speaking of a, of a story, I always like to... I always like to kind of conclude things before we wrap this thing up with a uh, with a quick story. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, if share a little story with us, you know, anything from a successful hunt or you know, a, a near miss or just something that's memorable to you and, and give us every detail of the state that you were hunting and uh, everything from the time you hopped out of the truck back to the tailgate. Well, let me see. I like freelance. Freelance hunts are kind of cool. Yeah. But that Ohio hunt was really, you know what, I'll give you an Illinois, I'm going to give you an Illinois hunt, public land in December. This one was really good, too. Because this one here will give your listeners something to think about and something to maybe key on personally themselves for hunting in the late season. Um, I wanted to go hunting in Illinois. I'd never hunted in Illinois before, and I was going to go to Starved Rock State Park. That's a big, huge piece of public land, and I think Matheson Parks borders it. So there's two big state parks. It's like 16,000 acres. And uh, I was going by myself, but I I wanted to go after a snow because I knew if I went after a snow, I'd be looking at immediate sign that was made within the last 24 hours. Mm -hmm. 
So I watched the weather, and when it looked like there was going to be some snow going through, I called the park ranger, because all the parks in Illinois have park rangers, because they actually have buildings with park rangers in them. And I said, did you guys get that snow that was going through? I'm thinking of coming down there bow hunting. And this is after their gun season. This was just several days after their last gun season. And he said, yeah, we got eight inches of fresh snow. So I had my van all loaded up, and I just took off and went down there, and uh, it was kind of interesting. You had to you had to park. You had to go to this specific building, and you had to pull a card off of a, there was 32 slots. Each one had a clipboard, and each one had X amount of parking passes on the clipboard. So each each slot designated a different parking area in this park. And the park I was hunting in, you only had two passes, so only two people could hunt and park in this spot and hunt. So I, I signed into this spot, and I went in, and I, and I scouted. And, again, I wasn't hunting. I was just totally scouting. And I found two different locations where there was locust trees. Now, locust trees are those trees that have those big, long spike needles on them mm-hmm. in clusters. And, uh, and they were just tore up underneath. I mean, the acorns had pretty much been mowed up. Uh, and there was a big, huge weed field. I'm talking 10-foot-tall weed butting up to this, this wooded area. And, like, 15 yards off the side of these weeds was this one locust tree, and it was just like a, a plow went in there. I mean, there was beans laying all over the top of the snow, and it had just been churned up. So I set up in a tree about 15 yards away from it, and uh, the very first evening I was hunting it, it was 7 degrees when I left the hotel, 35 mile an hour straight winds. I mean, it was cold. And I had on two Rivers West ambush jackets, five uh, adhesive body warmers, and (laughs) I got up in the tree, and about a half hour before dark, I was like, why are you sitting here? It's snowing like crazy. I mean, it is snowing hard, and it's just vertical because it's so windy. And I almost got out of the tree because I hadn't seen anything. I, I kept my nose, because I was in a saddle, so I'm facing the tree. I kept my nose right up tight to the tree so it wasn't making my eyes water. It was that windy. Right. And uh, about a half hour before dark, I'm like, you know what? You might as well just get out of the tree and go back to motel. Nothing's going to Nothing's going to move. And I'm like, you know what? You only got a half hour left. Just sit here and take it. You're not cold. You got all these body warmers on. You're fine. So I sat there, and about 10 minutes later, I looked down. I could see all the right side of the tree, which was the other side of, from where the locust tree was. I saw three little bucks. There was a spike horn, a four-point, and a six-point. <laughs> and they walked out of the timber and walked right into that weed field. I was like, well, that's kind of weird. I expected deer to come out of the weed field to the locust tree. Right. And uh, so anyway, just before dark, I had a small 10-point come in and started eating, come out of the weed field and started eating locust beans. And basically those locust beans, they don't touch them during the fall, you know, when it's just grass out. But during the winter, they're major feeding sources. And they, he would just kick his paw one time and like five bean pods pop up out of the, <laughs> off the ground and they'd just chew them, you know, have them sticking out of his mouth 10 inches. And um, he was about 110 inches to an half year old and I didn't shoot him. And just before dark, still snowing like crazy. I saw three does coming down the edge of the weeds and a big buck behind them. And they moved in, and it was a 12-point, just a perfectly typical 12-point. Hmm. 
and I shot him, and uh, he ran about 80 yards and tipped over, and it was just an absolute awesome hunt. And then the next year, I went and shot a nine-point, same exact tree, same exact scenario, called the park ranger, made sure they had snow. Hmm. Yeah, it, and I don't know why I haven't went back yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a place you should be visiting more often. <laughs> I, but the takeaway from that story is um, a lot of guys go on big parcels of public land in November or whatever. But if you go to these big parcels of public land and there's deer left after gun season, you know, go after you've got a fresh snow. That way, when you're walking around, you're not looking at runways that could be three weeks old. You're looking at sign that was made in the last 24 hours. So that's all sign that's being used right now. Right. And, you know, key on that. Uh, there was a friend of mine that hunted this other public land in farther south in Ohio, and he hunted it for several years and never shot anything. And he's like, well, man, they killed every, every time I'm down there, somebody on this 16,000 acres kills 170 inch or a couple hundred sixties. Well, how many people are there? I don't know, a couple hundred. I'm like, well, look at the odds. Right. If you get two monster bucks and there's a couple hundred people, that's a 1% odds. Right. So that's pretty crappy. So I told him about the snow thing. And the very first year he went down there, he went in December because he had been going in November, and he shot a buck the very first year. And I, I haven't talked to that guy since then. But <laughs> he shot a buck the first afternoon of his the very first time he went there in December. That's awesome. Yeah, so... I might need to try the old, the old, the old snow bit. I, I, I got a pretty nice spot picked out in Ohio that I've seen to like. It's one of those places that I, I have a little bit, a couple years of intel on it now, and I, I killed a nice buck there the first year I was there. Actually, the, the third day I hunted it, and I actually I, I took the. I didn't even know it was called the Eberhardt approach to be honest with you, but that's the <laughs> approach I took. I walked in, I, I scouted it on my way in. I found a hot, I found good sign. I hung a uh, hung a stand, and I saw bucks every day, and. Um, a handful of shooters and i finally got a shot at one the third day and uh i was there for eight days and was tagged out after three you know so that's awesome isn't that a good feeling it was it was by far one of my favorite hunts i mean the deer was awesome you know that that i that was able to harvest but it was just one of those things where i went in and didn't know a whole lot about the spot other than what i'd basically seen on some aerial i did a speed scout in the summer but didn't even really hit that spot you know i kind of was all around it and i just happened to i was like you know what this is where i'm going to go in you know, I kind of looked at it on a map and I was like, I kind of like what this, you know, how the terrain's laying out and hopped up in a tree. And it was just, I mean, it was as I'm, as you're talking, you know, during this, you know, hour and a half, we've been, been chatting. I'm kind of thinking back to that spot as you're kind of mentioning things. And it has almost every element that you had mentioned. There was a primary scrape that was there and just, it was almost, you know, picturesque where there was a primary scrape and there was a vine that was hanging down over the primary scrape that was natural. That was there as a licking branch. And yep. it was, a, you know, a huge scrape area. There was all kinds of transition to bedding cover on on the on the back side of that ridge, and then right below on the opposite side of the ridge, there was a, additional transition cover that that was there. That where if a deer was walking through there, they only had to take about two bounds, and they were they were disappearing in any direction. And man, it was just it was nonstop every day. I would have deer come in at, at daybreak. They would spend some time with me. Bucks would come in snorting ready to fight, ready to spar, ripping up trees. And it was just, it was, un, it was unreal. So last year, wouldn't you know, I didn't go back there. <laughs> <laughs> because? Uh, I was looking for that challenge and that big woods challenge, but uh, I'll, I'll be going back this year. Let's just say that. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of going back to that Illinois spot. That was in 2008. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you need to you need to make that rotation. But hey, I, before I let you go, I know I've kept you for a little while, and I do appreciate you spending some time with me, man. Um, I want to. I'd like for you to just give some folks out there, you know, information on where they can find out more about you. I know you got some workshops and stuff going on, so just where they can find out more about you, where they can find your books, and how they can get involved in the uh, any of the workshops you got going on. Uh, the workshops I only do in March, April, and early May. I just don't feel I'm doing the attendees justice if I do them in the summer when there's foliage everywhere mm-hmm. because you can't see why you can't see the reasons why I do things when there's foliage. Right. Um, but my website is d e e r hyphen the little line j o h n dot net. So it's deer hyphen john dot net and. Uh, my books, you can buy my books on there as well, and I've got most of my uh, the URLs for all the podcasts that I've done, and yours will be on there too, I hope. And uh, there's a lot of information on there about what I do in the books and the DVDs, and my email, if anybody wants me to send me anything on harness, saddle hunting, or on scent control, I'll be more than happy to forward you the information, is uh, Dear John. So this is my email, D-E-E-R-J-O-H-N-5-1, the number 51, at gmail.com. So it's dearjohn51 at gmail.com. Awesome, man. So all you folks out there, uh, be sure to get a hold of John. I've read through the documents that you sent me, and they're quite possibly some of the most. I I work in like a medical-ish field, and I think you Mm -hmm. had a more thorough document on your scent control than most of like the medical studies that I read. So it was... Uh, I don't believe anything any hunting manufacturer prints on their website. Right. Even scent locks. I research everything because nothing in the hunting industry was created by the hunting industry. If there's a technology, it came from someplace else. Hunting companies don't have R&Ds. They don't have staff scientists. Mm -hmm. It came from the auto industry or a governmental body or some sort of a a big pharmaceutical company. Uh, you know, it did not come from our little minuscule hunting industry. So I don't believe anything, any hunting company prints on their website. I research the technology and see where it's used and how it's used and how effective it is in other industries. And, uh, and that sir is why you have a, a wall of giant bucks. So thanks so much for coming on, buddy. Uh, John, John Eberhart, everybody. Thanks, man. Thank you. Uh, Good luck, everybody, this fall. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank John for joining. Be sure to visit his website at eberhartwhitetailworkshop.com to check out his upcoming workshop dates or purchase his books and DVDs. I'll place all the links in the blog post show notes as well. We'd, of course, like to thank all of you for listening, and if you haven't, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast to make sure it's delivered directly to your device each and every week. We'd be super appreciative if you'd uh, take some time to do those two things. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout-out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Tecamani Seed, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, and Trophy Taker Rests. And until next time, we'll see y'all. I ain't welcome anymore. Long time coming if it's all. It takes a special knowing to call a fall. Damaged heads, broken letters. 
Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.